Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of LTS Quick Snaps. This is our little side hustle, Jordan, where in this case we're breaking down the latest pair of episodes in the ESPN 10-part docu-series, The Last Dance. We are going to put forth our top takeaways of these last two episodes of the series, our biggest surprises, what we wish maybe there was more or less of, plus some random observations. Uh, we want to take some time to thank our title sponsor, Domino's Hawaii, for its continued support of the podcast. And we want to remind you that Domino's is engaging in contact list deliveries to assure that your pizza gets delivered safely and untouched to your door. All right, so episodes 9 and 10. Jordan, this was the climax of this 10-part docu-series. What were your top takeaways here? What was your overall sense of how this thing got wrapped up? Yeah, nothing, not a lot new, I thought, which was fine. Like We all knew the end of the story. Um, we all knew how this was going to end with 1998. They win it all again. Uh, and then that's, that's the end of the road for, for the 1990 Chicago Bulls. But it was still very enjoyable, I thought. You know, even if we didn't quite get into, you know, groundbreaking new territory, it was still very enjoyable. It was a fun two hours to kind of wrap up everything. Uh, you know, we got into some of the, the, the flu game in episode nine, uh, which I guess is, should be called the pizza game or the, the food poisoning game. I, I don't know if I'm fully buying that it was just food poisoning. I don't know. Like the fact that five guys show up at his hotel room and they, they let the pizza in, even though he's got this entire entourage telling him not to eat. It's like they couldn't figure something else out. I don't know. There's still something a little, little amiss, I think, when it comes to that whole story. Uh, we, we got the humanizing element of Michael again, right, when they, they explore his relationship with Gus Lett, his longtime security guard. Um, and how he basically became another father figure for Michael, particularly after the tragic death of Mike's actual father. And, and I thought that really humanized MJ in, a, in another way that, that we've seen throughout this series. It's not just cyborg Michael, uh, but really the, uh, the human that Michael is. Um, and then episode 10, right? It, it's, it's sort of still, I think, a, a sore spot in how this all ended. For, for everybody involved on the team, for, for all the fans involved. Uh, and I, I just summed up episode 10 with the Michael Jordan quote, which I'm sure will be on T-shirts everywhere, uh, where he said, you can say whatever you want. They can't win until we quit, which was so true, right? I mean, nobody, nobody could dethrone them, really, uh, until they, that team broke up. And it, it, they never really quit. That's the thing. And, and Michael ends the, the, the series, basically, right, talking about, hey, it's, it, it was maddening to leave at the peak. He didn't, he didn't want to be part of a rebuild. We know that Phil didn't want to be part of a rebuild, but they felt like they could all run it back. He's like, Hey, give us all one year contracts. We're back. Uh, even though Jerry Reinsdorf said, Hey, everybody's market value would have been way too inflated. It would have been suicidal to bring all these guys back. It's like, I don't know, suicide, whatever you want to call it. Hey, even if you fall off a cliff after 1999 or something, which again, it kind of factors into the timeline, right? 99 is the, the strike shortened year. So who knows how that all would have played out. Um, had they brought it all back, but it's just kind of, I think for Michael, it's maddening. I think for fans, it's maddening. It's like, we don't, we didn't want to try for a seven. Like but we, and we get the whole story. We get the whole background, but you hear it from the horse's mouth in Reinsdorf uh, at the end of the series and Michael watching it. And it's, it's kind of that uh, melancholy end, I think to all of this where we, it was so enjoyable, but again, there's, there's so the, the what ifs are, are looming so heavily over everybody involved. Yeah, these last two episodes felt a little bit more like a straight-up highlight reel, right? It was those last two championships 
coming against the Utah Jazz, and they would basically go back and forth to 1997 in that final series, back to 98 in that final series. Uh, we found out after these two episodes aired, uh, per reports, that Jason Hare, the director of this docuseries, didn't finish the final episode until last Thursday. Uh, and so because they moved up the airtime for these shows because of the pandemic, uh, he wasn't done. And so they were editing and putting this thing together while it was airing week to week. And I'm not going to say that it felt rushed, but I think it definitely lent itself to there being certain course corrections right in these last two episodes. We had talked a little bit about, not necessarily complaining about it, but I think pointing out the fact that, hey, look, this is a Jordan-led endeavor, right? This is, this is MJ giving the okay on whatever is in this thing from a content standpoint. Um, and while they touched on the gambling and they touched on other certain controversies, I think more or less we can agree that it was fairly glossed over. There wasn't much in terms of Jordan's personal life. This was not an expose. And we were saying we didn't really see even his family outside of his siblings and his mom. We didn't see his children. We didn't hear anything about his first marriage. And so in this final weekend, we saw his kids for the first time. There seemed to be a walking back uh, to a degree on just how villainized Jerry Krause was. Certainly the tone that was set in the first two episodes where it was like, all right, the antagonist in this story is Jerry Krause. They backed off of that a little bit here in these last two episodes. They didn't necessarily punch that point home. If anything, it was more of a reveal that, hey, look, maybe we were focusing all of our vitriol on the wrong Jerry. And Jerry Reinsdorf is actually the guy behind there being the, the, the main reason why this thing fell apart and why they didn't get a chance to go for that seventh championship. It was Jerry Krause sort of front and center as the mouthpiece, but Jerry Reinsdorf very much thinking along the exact same terms. And he's the owner. He's the money guy. He didn't want to pay the money to keep these guys here and to hear him talk about it at the end. Like, you know, we had Michael getting older. We had Scotty and his situation. And I mean, he was talking like this was a, a gang of, of chumps. And it was like, well, they just won six out of eight championships, Jerry. Like, I think we should put things into perspective. But my top takeaway was just that. It didn't feel rushed, necessarily, the ending of this docuseries. It felt, to a degree, adjusted. As if you could tell that there were some adjustments made on the fly. Is that fair, in your opinion? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I, I think to sit there and, and watch the tone of the series and not think that Jason Hare and the rest of the filmmakers took into account some of the feedback and some of the, the public sentiment through the first, you know, two, two episodes, then four episodes, then six episodes and so on. Um, I, I think that'd be a little naive. Uh, I think it's pretty apparent, right? I mean, Scotty and, and Jerry Krause and Phil and Jerry Krause and, and all of these antagonistic relationships. And we get that. Uh, but I, I, I don't know if they were going to originally include Scotty basically praising Jerry Krause at the end. I mean, he called him the greatest general manager of all time. I mean, he's lumping them all in together, but they weren't doing that kind of talk early on. So, yeah, I think there's, there's a little bit of that, right? I mean, you even, you even bring up the fact that they threw in his three children at the end. I mean, it was very quick, and it was pretty inconsequential. I mean, it was just talking about the, the, the hostility in Utah and the crowd there, which is nothing unknown, I think, to basketball fans. But it's like, well, they just threw a little bit in there, right? I mean, they clearly had done some interviews or at least a interview with, with the, the three children, the, the two sons together. So, yeah, I think that's fair. I think it's fair to say it was 
a little adjusted and they definitely spent episode 10 tying up some loose ends if you will um which i don't think is a bad thing or anything but but for sure i i, I gotta imagine it was at least adjusted influence just a little bit all right so what were some of your biggest surprises that you came across here in these last two episodes yeah again there were there, to me there weren't a ton my, my big one was i had forgotten the timeline of dennis rodman going <laughs> to do the hulk hogan wc nwo thing um, I didn't realize it was through the middle of the finals in 1998. And I could just only, if anybody tried something like that in this day and age with TMZ and 24 hour sports news cycles, right? Like you could imagine the field day first take and undisputed and all of these shows would have, if it leaked that Dennis Rodman was on a plane going to Detroit from Salt Lake city to go take place in a wrestling event in the middle of the finals, where they're trying to win another championship in a, a pretty closely contested finals as well. Like, it's crazy. Um, and, and I know Dennis pulled these kind of shenanigans and, and things like that. I just forgotten the timeline. So that was my big surprise. And I just, I thought everything was encapsulated. Like, the entire relationship amongst the key players on the Bulls was, was encapsulated in that scene where they're like starting practice and Phil's basically admonishing the team and admonishing Dennis Rodman and, uh, I forget who else it was. Somebody, I don't know, somebody who hadn't come to practice on time or whatever. Uh, and, and Phil trying to hold everything together and then breaking to start practice. And MJ just leaves the huddle yelling, Rodzilla. <laughs> and it's like him leading in his own way and basically saying, like, Dennis, we know you're screwing up, but get your act together. And then he goes out and grabs 20 rebounds or whatever it is in the next game. Um, so I just thought that scene just ca- encapsulated everything that went on with the dynamic, especially with those three guys. Yeah, that was surprising to me. I, I had forgotten the timeline as well. It's remarkable to think that Dennis Rodman could just jet out from <laughs> that uh, NBA Finals series and, and go and, and wrestle with Hulk Hogan a little bit and then come back and you know put on a show. I mean, that is vintage Dennis Rodman, I guess, part of his legend for sure. Another element that surprised me was the story of Steve Kerr's father, uh, the measure uh, by which he succumbed to the violent death being shot in the head uh, as the president of the American University in Beirut and how that tied him and Michael Jordan together in terms of these are two individuals, incredible competitors, sharing championship endeavors and experiences whose, whose fathers were met with untimely deaths and yet they never talked about it. Steve Kerr said that was something we never really discussed and they had this incredibly profound and painful potential connection and it wasn't necessarily something that they took any time to explore with one another. I found that to be not just surprising but extremely interesting. Yeah, you know, I, I, I remembered... Uh, the, the story of, of Steve Kerr's father, I, I thought it actually occurred when, he, when Steve was a lot younger um, and not, not when he was already in college at the University of Arizona. But yeah, it's such tragedy. And, and one of those things, right, because it, we, we've explored in previous episodes sort of the relationship with Steve Kerr and Michael Jordan and, and Kerr kind of gaining the respect because they basically came to blows uh, and, and just sort of the, the, the interesting dynamic, right? And I'm sure there was a a bit of an unspoken understanding, an unspoken bond. It's kind of the vibe you got, um, but something they, they never actually verbalized. Uh, so I, I thought that was pretty interesting and, and um, you know, gut-wrenching at the same time. All right, well, let's get into what we wish there was either more or less of. What were the things that maybe you would have liked to have seen more, maybe things that you thought were uh, overblown and, and you could have done a little bit less with? 
Yeah, my my only small small complaint really was was we we know the jumping around of timelines. It it got a little blurred at the end just because the timelines were so close together. Right, we start episode nine in the '98 Eastern Conference Finals, uh, which I thought was a great portion of this 10-part documentary, just because Reggie Miller is such an intriguing mm-hmm. um, a, a, a character when it comes down to it. Um, but then, you know, then you, you jump immediately back less than less than 12 months prior in the 97 finals with the Jazz, of course, and we're all leading to the 98 finals with the same exact team in Utah. So just a little bit of that, um, you know, I, I could imagine for, for, for folks as well that maybe aren't as intimately familiar with each season and they all kind of blur together, right? I mean, you're talking about six seasons in eight years, uh, especially 97 and 98 where they played the jazz both times in the finals. So just a little bit of that more. My two things that I wrote down for more, uh, what I want more of is, is every single piece of footage out there that involves Michael, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, because anytime we see those three guys together in this documentary and elsewhere, it's gold, right? It is trash talk at the highest of levels, and this time it's just Michael playfully telling Larry after the seventh game of that hard-fought 98 series, like, Larry, you be F you. And that was it. And they're like, hey, say hi to the family. You know, it's like, it's like man, I, I, could, I could watch just snippets of that, uh, little, little chunks of film all the way through. And, and then my other thing, and, and we know we're, not, we're never going to get all the behind-the-scenes footage and all that kind of stuff. What I'd really love to see, and, and I guess ESPN's doing a little bit of this on Wednesday, um, it, it's just all the game footage. Those high-def cameras followed that team around the entire season, and they're filming the games. They're filming the bench. I mean, we get some great shots, right, uh, of, like, George Lett sitting behind the bench. Um, and they're, they're all high-def cameras. Um, and, and so we've seen a little bit of that. We've seen little portions throughout the series. And so we, we know Michael's got to sign off on all the behind-the-scenes stuff and all that kind of stuff, but we're not going to get every bit of that. I understand. But the game footage, I would love to watch all those games back in high def because I think people would even appreciate Michael and those teams even more if we don't have to necessarily watch the grainy YouTube game footage, which isn't bad. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but it is an HD. And then you start watching some of the, the, the clips that they put together. So I want to see all the game footage um, in the high definition. My pick for what I wish there was more of is actually, I'm sort of bending the rules just a tad and I'm wishing that there was anything of, certain elements to the story that we find out after the fact or outside of the docu-series presentation. And one of those was in the NBA Finals, Carl Malone, in one of those games early on in the first meeting, uh, he had two free throws at the line. It was a game that was played on a Sunday, and Scottie Pippen ripped off one of the greatest trash-talking lines ever where he says, the mailman doesn't deliver on Sundays. And Carl Malone proceeded to miss those two free throws. It cost them the game. Very well could have cost them the series, or at least it could have been a different type of series moving forward had he hit those free throws. But that wasn't included uh, in this docuseries. I was a bit surprised by that because I think that was a pretty pivotal part of that storyline and something I would have loved to have seen. The other thing is we go back to the quote-unquote flu game, which actually, as you pointed out, was more of a food poisoning game, or at least Pizza Gate could be another label that you could throw onto that. And uh, a lot of people questioning, well, why was Michael the only one to eat the pizza when there are three other guys in the room early in the morning and there's a pizza sitting there that seems unlikely? And yes, he's Michael, so you, you know, bow down to whatever his wishes are. But come to find out from the director, Jason Hare, uh, Michael would have a tendency to spit on food to prevent other people from eating it. And that's like a a whole other corner of the Michael Jordan personality dynamic could have explained a little bit further the whole uh, flu game 
uh, set up there. But yeah, I would have liked to have seen maybe some of those background stories that we found out outside of the docuseries presentation. Yeah, there's so much more to explore, right? Um, it's so many different angles and some of these side tangent topics, uh, whether it's, yeah, if Michael was spitting on food these days, I think he'd get arrested for that. Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, I was surprised they didn't include the, uh, the mailman doesn't deliver on Sunday's line, uh, because it is, it's as good as it gets. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's just get into the random observations. This, this part is, is maybe one of the more uh, enjoyable uh, aspects of, of these LTS Quick Snaps episodes because uh, we get to just sort of pick off some of the things that stood out to us, random or otherwise. What were you start with? Yeah, I'll start with the trash talk, right? It was Reggie uh, telling the story of, of meeting up with Michael early in their careers. And he'd tell you, oh, I thought you're supposed to be walking on water and Michael proceeds to drop, I don't know, 25 in the second half or something, and then just comes up and tells him, uh, don't you ever tra- trash talk black Jesus again, uh, which I thought that, that was great. Um, speaking of trash talk, how was the crazy Indiana lady uh, that somehow the camera was just on and they had that footage and she's like, damn you bulls, and then in your bleeping face, it's like, wow. Yeah. I don't know if that was somebody's mom or whatnot, but boy, imagine watching that film back. Uh, and that lady someplace is like, wow. There's me in 1998, just potty mouthing all over the place. Like I thought that was hilarious. Grandma, um, is that you? Yeah. <laughs> I guess it is. Yes, it is. Wow, that, things have uh, things have changed. I thought that was that was terrific, uh, and kind of kind of lines up with what we what we remember of uh, Market Square Arena back then. I think in in Indianapolis. Um, the uh, the other one we were, we were talking about Steve Kerr. Uh, but I, I think Steve Kerr would have a laugh at it as well. He's talking in the victory speech, right? Victory parade speech. I think it's after 97. And he's jokingly talking about, hey, Phil drew up the play for Michael in the huddle. And Michael's like, nah, I don't, I don't think I should, I should shoot this one. And, and, of course, it plays out where he hits the shot to, to clinch the series. And, and, and they win the NBA title. And he's wearing, like, an oversized T-shirt tucked into khaki shorts and tube socks. And I'm like, how? <laughs> and Michael's sitting there with, like, a backwards hat, a cigar, like, Oakley shades. And it's like, man, just the, the juxtaposition of cool. And I think, like, Steve Kerr's cooler now as a coach. Yeah. He's, like, more swagged out, right? He's a little, he's a little more chic as a, as a coach than he was when he was hitting game-winning shots in the NBA Finals. I, ju- I just thought it was just a funny look. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of what we think of Steve Kerr, even though he was clutch, even though he was, he was tough as nails for that team. It was just kind of a funny look for him. And then my last one is uh, Michael with the Walkman. That is 90s, man. That is 90s. That he's got an advanced copy of Kenny Lattimore's CD. <laughs> like, that was great. He's like, man, it's Kenny Lattimore. And, you know, he's got, the, he's got the big Walkman headphone uh, deals that, like, wrap around the ear. And I was like, yeah, I remember everybody having one of those. That's right. uh, and I thought, I thought it was great. Yeah, that was state of the art uh, at the time. You know, you, you mentioned Steve Kerr, and that speech was just hilarious, right, where he's saying that, you know, describing it as, you know, Michael, he's not very comfortable in these late game situations, and so I guess I had to bail him out again. I mean, just classic stuff, and I think that is the humor that you now definitely associate with Steve Kerr. He's a witty, clever guy, very intellectual. Uh, yeah, you're right. I think he's gotten a lot cooler here uh, as time has gone on. Uh, you know, maybe being a multi- championship head coach to add on to your multi-championship playing career it'll tend to do that uh, for you I think in a lot of instances Uh, some of my other observations um, MJ 
talking about how he was offended by Brian Russell the first time they met because Russell, when uh, this was during MJ's first retirement, saying that I, I can't believe you retired because I think I could have guarded you. And Michael remembering that and being offended by that. And I just kind of thought, you know, Michael is like Twitter. Like basically Michael Jordan is the basketball embodiment of modern day Twitter where he finds a reason to be offended by everything, right? <laughs> everything and anything. Like he is the, he, he is the personification of cancel culture. Because if you, if you say just something that is just possibly the wrong thing, or if you said something that could be deemed negative or the wrong thing or inappropriate years ago, Michael is going to hold you accountable for it. And I just found that to be funny. Like there was nobody that was more easily offended by stuff than Michael Jordan, but that was part of the, the mechanism he used to, to further motivate himself. I, I thought that that was uh, pretty funny. Uh, and then another thing that stood out to me, I, for the life of me, could not find in any of the crowd shots in Utah a person of color. Like, I'm not trying to be too judgmental, but in all of those crowd shots, and then they had the freeze frame of that famous Sports Illustrated photo, and I'm like, I don't see anybody except for those who are participating in some form or fashion on the floor. I, I hate to uh, put Utah on the spot there like that as a city. Love Salt Lake City for sure. It's uh, an awesome town, but uh, yeah, a lot of white folks. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, I mean, they, the, the snow-covered mountains are still white during june uh there in salt lake city so it's just you know reflective of the scenery that's right that's right well these two episodes brings us to the ending the conclusion of this series so i think it would only be appropriate if we sort of ended this lts quick snaps episode with what you felt was the overall theme your overall impression of the last dance yeah i got to start off with saying that, that with all of the hype the expectations the pressure especially of moving the release date up by a couple of months uh more than a couple two and a half months or something like that i i thought they the filmmakers did an incredible job considering right i, I there there are some you know maybe small complaints or, or some reservations when it comes to some of the stuff and, and we knew some of the parameters and limitations going in for sure um, but all things considered, I, I thought it turned out terrific. I, I really thought it turned out quite enjoyable. Um, you know, we, we explore a lot of the different characters involved. We explore Michael Jordan in a way that, that we really haven't ever. And I get it. It's, it's on his terms and everything like that, but, but boy, it's better than anything else we've gotten. And, and just what made he as the greatest player tick, what made that team come together, how it all worked, um, the dynamic between he and, and Phil Jackson and, and just the, the arc of his career and the ending of the Bulls. Uh, I, I think they, um, they really hashed a lot of those things out, and, and I really enjoyed um, each storyline as they explored it. Yeah, I think for me, the, the theme of this docuseries, in my opinion, is Michael Jordan and that drive, that hunger, that intense, as you put it, psychopathic motivation to be a winner to be a champion and the cost that it came with where he had to leave that scorched earth around him and we sort of mythologize that I think we hold him up as as the example of what tremendous competitive leadership is all about it is demanding from others uh, nothing that you wouldn't demand of yourself but it is demanding the extreme maximum effort and extreme maximum edge uh, but I think Nate Scott 
uh, for USA Today for the win actually wrote a column that I fully agree with because at what cost did all of this come for Michael Jordan? And he basically sums it up. He says, you know, his biggest takeaway from the documentary is, quote, Jordan was the ultimate winner, but the drive to win like that doomed him to a life of loneliness and anger. And while that may be a little strong, I did sense that. The end of episode seven, where we've got that really unprecedented look of Michael from an emotional standpoint, talking about how he played the game and the, the competitiveness with which he played the game and how he demanded that of others. And, and it was up to them to decide if they wanted to play like that as well. But I also wondered in our last episode recording, I also wondered if there was any sense of what this cost me and how he became so utterly isolated. You have other teammates who played for years alongside Michael Jordan who didn't have necessarily tremendous things to say about Michael Jordan as a person. Everything that was positively said about him was as a competitor and a player, but how much actual interpersonal affection was there? As far as people who were his co-workers, so to speak, you didn't get a lot of that. There doesn't seem to be a huge amount of genuine affection. To me, that was one of the takeaways I got. That was one of the themes of this, was it was Michael Jordan in all of his greatness and glory as a basketball player. There seemed to be a heavy price that was paid that is still felt to this day. And he is still in many ways, whether you look back on his Hall of Fame induction speech, whether you look back on other relationships that have gone afoul, like his relationship with close friend or former close friend, Charles Barkley, uh, and how much bitterness there still is, how he still is so easily offended. There, is still, there are still countless grudges that he holds. And, and I think that feeds into what Michael Jordan is, and it is so much more complex, and in some cases, maybe even somewhat sad when you think about it, somewhat uh, sympathetic when you think about uh, what he had to pay to be that great. Bring it up. We talked about it the other week, and, and I, I think it, it reminds me of, of something we discussed where it's kind of like, you know, he, he at the end of episode seven, he's almost apologizing, or, or not really apologizing, but he feels the need to defend his true self, right? Because I, I think we get that, like the, the competitiveness, the drive, all of that, it wasn't manufactured. Like he didn't need to create some, some catchphrase for it. He didn't need to create some, uh, you know, uh, made up deal where it's like, hey, this is how I do things. It's like, that's just how he's wired, you know? And, and that's how he competes. And I think that more than anything is what set him above the other all-time greats is like this, this wiring deep in him that, yeah, it, 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 it leaves a little bit of scorched earth. There is that for sure. Uh, but I think it's what, it, what allowed him to go to a level that I don't know if we've ever really seen in that level, right? And he talks about at the end of 98 and how that felt almost more special to him because it was as much of his mind as it was his body and the craftsmanship it took to win that championship, not just the physical ability. Um, and so I... I I highly doubt he'd give anything back to have a few more friends. That doesn't mean it makes it any more less lonely or any less, you know, burdensome to be Michael Jordan. Um, but I do think, you know, even if you take some, some sympathy toward the life he leads now or whatever, um, you know, I think that we, that's generally genuinely who he is. Like he is that guy. He is that, that, that crazy guy. Right. I mean, I, I could, I could watch, the documentary all day getting into the psyche of Michael and, and his 
psychological, emotional makeup, because I do think he is different than normal human beings and even normal elite athletes. Uh, and that is as big a reason as any of the God-given physical attributes he had uh, as to why he was the greatest. Yeah, I could have used some more of that, frankly. But again, yeah. this was a different type of documentary. This wasn't the O.J. Simpson documentary series. This was something that was different. And I think it was extremely enjoyable, even if it wasn't as much of a typical documentary expose on some of the, the controversies, potentially, that were occurring, some of the more questionable behaviors that were occurring beneath the surface. Uh, but it was really, really fun. A lot of fun. Uh, last question. If that team comes back the next year, do they win number seven, in your opinion, in 1999? Yeah, again, it's weird because you, you end up running into some of the labor issues and the shortened season, uh, which I think would probably benefit them, right? If they, if they, the, the old bodies got, you know, they only had to play, what, 60 games or whatever it was in 99. I think so. Like, I know it's your Spurs that year, but yeah, the, sorry, the eight. Sorry. The Spurs are look, coming. <laughs> <laughs> they definitely get out of the East. I mean, the eighth seed in New York with Allen Houston leading the way makes the finals in 98 out of the East. And you're telling me, Michael, you know, even if he's running around on some tired old legs, but with a, or a prolonged offseason, you know, with the labor stoppage, can't, can't dethrone Allen Houston and what, Latrell Sprewell? On those 98 Knicks teams, or 99 Knicks teams, like, come on, the Bulls are getting out of the East at the very least. Yeah, yeah. But then once they run into that machine that was uh, <laughs> first set in motion in 99, the San Antonio Spurs, who's stopping Avery Johnson in that series? That's what I got to ask. Yeah, you, uh, I'll take Michael against Sean Elliott. That, uh, I'll take that matchup. <laughs> anyway, uh, Jordan, been a lot of fun. Talk to you again soon. Yeah, it's been a blast, man. <laughs>